I knew we had a attractive proposition. And also I wasn't desperate to sell because I just thought the worst case scenario is that I can just go back to what I was doing before, which was the lifestyle business thing. So when I was speaking to those 12 different buyers, I didn't feel like they were interviewing me. I felt like I was interviewing them. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today, we're going to talk about building, selling, automating, and scaling an agency. I know sometimes we don't give agencies a lot of love on the show, maybe because when Ian and I started out, we were trying to bolt from one. But the reality is, is in our case, and in today's guest's case, they're a wonderful business that you can really start in a weekend. And not only can they cash flow your entrepreneurial learnings and adventures, but as you'll hear from today's guest, can also provide you with a life-changing exit. My name is Jodie Cook, and in no particular order, I am an athlete, writer, and entrepreneur. Now, when Jodie, who's a member of the Dynamite Circle, or the DC, says she's an athlete, we're talking about elite level here. She's represented the UK internationally and builds her life around powerlifting in a really cool way and sort of leverages location independence to do that. But the reason we've asked her on the show this time is to talk about how not only she built herself out of her business, which is a social media consultancy, which was even founded under her name and was in a location, like they had an office, but managed to grow through COVID in a way that enabled her to sell that business without an earnout, which is typically when you think in the agency world, earnouts are a big part of selling those businesses. I know a lot of agency owners are out there asking, How might one get themselves out of the day-to-day process of running an agency, what Jody calls, by the way, the Jody show, and progress from there? So let's just jump right into it. What started to change when you realized it was the Jody show and that wasn't sustainable? A few things. One was that I just really wanted to go on holiday. I just wanted to travel. I just was like, hang on, I can't take a holiday because everything relies on me. I'm just the bottleneck for every single process. I read the four-hour work week, which helped slash didn't help. (laughs) And so that's when I thought I just need to sort this out so that I can just travel. So at that point, I booked myself a flight that was about five weeks in the future for a five-week trip to Australia. And I just put myself in a deadline to sort it out and get processes in place and make my business not reliant on me. What'd you do? A few things that I did that really made a difference was I wrote down a list of every single process that happened in my business. And then I wrote down next to it, who did it now? And then I wrote down who should do it in the future. And then I just made sure that whatever was in the third column It wasn't me. It was either someone that worked for me already, someone that I needed to hire, something I needed to outsource, or something I just needed to stop doing because it was so stupid. That How many pages did you get this onto? There was 60 lines. There were 60 different processes that I made a plan for. And then I turned that into a giant manual. So every single one of those 60 processes turned into an SOP document pretty much. Have you found 
I hate to jump ahead too much, but just quickly, has that level of detail sustained or have you evolved that? That level of detail has sustained. It was one of the reasons why I was able to sell the agency without an earnout because things were documented and things had a process and there's only so much deviation. And I know that there's always improvements to be made to processes, but if you at least have an agreed set of standards, then at least it's a starting point because I was aware that I didn't want all this knowledge to just be in my head because that wasn't useful when I was in Australia. When you decided, so you had this five-week time frame. I love the image of the 60 lines. That's such a cool... <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking a lot in my business about what I've been calling it. I asked about pages because I've been calling them one pagers uh-huh. and just like trying to sum up these like really complicated things. Like, you know, like the 10 commandments are on one page or whatever. Yeah. And they say a lot. And so like that you can put complicated things onto one page. When I looked and saw my name next to all of these 60 processes, first of all, it was like, wow, no wonder I'm so busy. But then also it was like, <laughs> I knew so many business owners at the time who were doing exactly that and didn't realize it was a problem. So it felt like the moment of self-awareness was probably the the thing that changed everything, not necessarily the table in itself. Was there any interpersonal issues with you going to Australia? I'm thinking staff and I'm thinking clients. There's kind of a moment when the owner goes four-hour work week in every business that you wonder, like, is my staff going to go four-hour work week? What are they going to think? One thing that worked in my favor was that it was also my honeymoon. Another thing that worked in my favor was I can be quite intense in that if someone says a vague statement to me, I'll be like, well, what do you mean by that? So if someone said to me like, oh, I think there'll there'll be all these problems when you go to Australia, I would have said, huh, which problems? And then written them down and then kept saying, well, tell me another problem. Tell me another problem until they just had no problems left. (laughs) And then next to each one of them, I would have written down, okay, well, if this happens and this is going to happen, and then it would be another manual sheet. I don't think there was any, I don't think there there were any problems. In advance. Now, what happened when you actually went on the five week? It was fine. And actually what I found out is the team thrived because they were just left to their own devices a little bit more. If I was there and they had a question, they would just ask me. They probably wouldn't bother searching for the answer themselves. And so I was just being used as Google and you can use Google as Google. It's pretty good. So by taking myself away and especially on a, on such a different time zone, because it was about, it's like 10 or 11 hours difference. They just had to work things out. And so I think I created a more resourceful team who actually could see their own career progression better if I wasn't there. And it's an asset too, potentially, so long as they stay in the organization. So tell me what happened when you came back. When I came back, I realized that nothing had burned down. And I realized that I could do this again and again. So that trip became the start of traveling being completely away for one month in every three. And we did that for five years up until COVID. How did you choose where to go? There's a process. Do you want to hear the process? I really do want to hear the process. (laughs) The process is listen out for people who you like and like hanging out with, mentioning places that they think are cool. I quite like looking places up on Nomad List to see the neighborhoods and just to find out a little bit more about it. I like going on the DC to see how many DCers are there. And then once we've settled on a city, then what we do first is choose a gym. It's worth mentioning. I will 
bookmark this now, maybe circle back later. You're an elite athlete. So you need the gym is the most critical thing. Yeah. A gym that has good powerlifting facilities is really important. So we find a gym and then book an Airbnb next to it as close as possible to it. Because if that's what we're going to do every day, I don't want the travel time to be super big. We book the flights and then we go. Training seriously for uh, any competitive sport seems to typically be a hindrance to travel. What's your perspective on that? Powerlifting is a very gym-based sport. And because it consists of the squat, the bench press, and the deadlift, you can do that in most gyms. And even gyms that wouldn't have had the right kit are evolving to have the right kit as more people get into lifting weights. So it's definitely got easier. There is In the last few trips, there's been more options available than there ever were right at the start. On the last week's episode, our guest talked about sort of nerding out. Have you ever gone somewhere specifically because of the gym culture? Vienna, Austria. There's a gym there called Das Gym. It calls itself the best gym in the world. I think it might be. (laughs) And the reason I think it might be is because they just care so much. And the gym is, it's almost more like a museum. Like in the toilets, they play Arnie Arnie movie (laughs) and they've got just kit from all around the world. They've researched, they've been to loads of other gyms to find out what's good and they've just created this amazing environment. And so when we were training for, it might've been the world championships in 2018, it was like, let's spend April in Vienna. Let's live right next to Das Gym. We can go in and out of Vienna, but the main thing is that we're next to this incredible gym. So yeah, geeking out on those types of places is definitely a thing that has happened before. That's cool. I like hearing about this stuff because I think it's one of the highest upside, most exciting things about travel is like finding your nerd group, you know, and just like doubling down. It's so much fun. Yeah. Well, especially DC Mexico was great because we had a little fitness crew. And so we'd (laughs) go and it was just a whole day of entrepreneurial, fitnessy people nerding out on everything they love to do. So that was one of my favorite days in the last month. So for five years, you spent two months at home. Would you still go to the office during those five years? What were your ambitions? Like, we call that the middle game of business. Like, you made it, you know? Like, you didn't have to have a job like your friends. But what were you going to do with it? I think it did feel like the middle game of business. I felt like I had set up a true lifestyle business and it felt kind of good I think I spent that time really doing it properly and when I was in the UK at some point towards the end of that five-year time period I created myself office hours so I would be in the office I think it was Monday Wednesday Friday something like 8 a.m to 12 p.m And then the rest of the time I'd be training or away. I wouldn't necessarily not be working, but I wasn't accessible at that point because I wanted to replicate all the benefits that had come from traveling and not being accessible and all the progress that my team had made in that time. It did kind of feel like I'd like I'd made it, but maybe that's a bit dangerous because you start to get a bit comfortable and then a global pandemic kind of throws you off your stride with that. What happened? So in March 2020, when the UK went into lockdown, so many people were just panicking because they didn't know what was going to happen. We lost about a quarter of our client base in one week. And you can write all the process documents in the world, but no one's team really knows how to deal with that. There was this sort of agency moment in our community where we experienced it with DC members. I think we had 30 members in one week 
just everybody was just canceling everything they had. It was it doesn't matter if it was Netflix yeah. or like Jody's agency yeah. or the Dynamite Circle. Like, I mean, there was just that moment where everybody's like, "I'm canceling." Yeah, <laughs> I think that happened. And a friend called Mike, he canceled his vitamin subscription, <laughs> and then afterwards he was like, "What am I doing? I still want my vitamins." But it was just he was caught up in that just cancel everything culture. That week was kind of hard, and I think. I responded by getting so back involved and almost trying to outwork coronavirus because I just thought, oh, we've lost clients. Then we need to get more clients. So I need to just work on it all the time and do more stuff. And I think I spent the next couple of months just being there all the time with my team. We ran webinars every day. We just we did so much stuff to try and replicate not being able to see anyone in real life. So many of our referrals came from our network. And being out and about and members of the team meeting people. So we just had to find some way of replicating that. So we went to town on webinars. And I think in 2019, we sent like three emails to our database. And in 2020, we were sending like one every week or one, one every day sometimes maybe. We just went crazy on that kind of stuff because I just thought we need to get the business back to the level it was before. And then what actually happened is over the next four months, it grew back to where it was before. And then we grew by a further 20%. So it was actually quite good. Was it due to your work or the coronavirus? I think it was down to a mix of everything. But a massive factor was just how amazing the team were. Everyone went from working in an office to working remotely. We had Tom, our graphic designer, became Taskmaster Tom. And on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, he would orchestrate like the team huddle. And on a Monday, it was just a regular all team meeting. On a Wednesday, we'd talk about some kind of work challenge that we all had. And these were just 15 minute all team meetings. And then on a Friday, the huddle task would be something like you have to tell everyone what type of biscuit you are or like (laughs) the last movie you watched or just stupid stuff like that. But I think because there was so much focus on us like coming together as a team, it just really worked. And so it was a really good experience. Today's show is sponsored by AppSumo, the number one digital marketplace for entrepreneurs. That's right. They're a marketplace and a great way to get your name in front of 1 million plus entrepreneurs, founders, affiliate marketers, and small businesses. You can sell your software, ebook, PDF template library, online course, WordPress plugin, or even event tickets. You get the idea. Anything for entrepreneurs, you can find it on AppSumo. The average digital product on AppSumo earns between $700 and $5,000 a month, depending on the type of product. What an easy, no-brainer, extra revenue stream for you and your business. I've listed my book before the exit on AppSumo, and I know many listeners of this show are already getting results by using this amazing marketplace so check them out. Head on over to appsumo.com slash sell. That's what we're doing around here. And thanks to AppSumo for sponsoring the show. Can you help the audience to visualize like what was your sweet spot product? Like, you know, you're kind of the average flow from like, this would be a good client. This Just to help people visualize, man, that want to build a better agency someday. I think there's so many listeners of the show that have a skill set. And they know how to market companies, but they haven't really turned it into an agency yet. So what were those products working for you? There's an analogy that I really like, and it's kind of a hunting analogy, but it's rabbits, deer, and elephants. Well, rabbits are those animals <laughs> where there's loads of them around. There's not much meat on them. It's really easy to catch one. But once you catch one, they kind of multiply. And then all of a sudden, you've got loads of rabbits. Huh. 
elephants are much harder to catch. They might take three or four people to catch, but once you've caught one, it can feed you for, like, it could feed a family for months. But the problem with elephants is that you have to have the right equipment and you have to have the right situation for storing an elephant and looking after an elephant because otherwise it's not going to be very happy. And then the middle is deer. And deer take fewer people to catch and they can feed you for quite a long time, but they're not as high maintenance as elephants and they're not going to be super non-meaty like rabbits. So after definitely starting off with rabbits as clients and going through the years and having a few elephants, we settled on deer. This was from a monthly billing point of view, it was kind of maybe between $1,000 and $5,000. But that was just such a sweet spot because the type of companies that we were after and the type of work we were doing for them and how involved we would be in their business. We were deer hunters after experiencing rabbits and elephants. So that was the plan. I typically ask questions, but I like to weigh in on this one because it's one of my like beefs on the show ongoing is there's a lot of agency coaches and consultancy coaches that always say just charge more go for bigger clients and i'm like y'all are coaches you haven't dealt with bigger clients in a very long time yeah what is your experience with elephants we've had a little bit of experience with elephants and one in particular was about 20 percent of our entire agency's revenue and whilst that was fantastic it was a really cool brand we did loads of really cool work we got shortlisted for some awards for the work as well it was high maintenance and sometimes the high maintenance level would outweigh the benefit. And it was very much like this client clicks their fingers, everything stops because they are important. And I didn't really like that balance of power and balance of energy. And I didn't like the idea that our other clients might be neglected if this elephant stomped around a bit. So it was after about 18 months of that, that we thought we're definitely focusing on deer. Like we know for sure that that, that has to be our strategy. Can you help define a deer for me outside of one to $5,000 billing rates? What's the characteristics? Like, what would you charge me $5,000 a month for? We're kind of deerish. We're in the middle. We got like 10 employees. We're understaffed. We want elephant around and we do have budget to spend 3000 bucks a month to market. What package might your agency pull together for a company like that? So maybe a typical package for a deer might be that you're doing, say, LinkedIn lead generation on behalf of a couple of members of the team. You're in charge of creating the strategy for what you do in accordance with the marketing manager, say. That probably is a good defining characteristic of deers. They have a marketing manager, or that was the case for us anyway. So they're already invested in their marketing. In other words, they're not using you as like some, a rabbit would be like, we don't do marketing, but we'd love to see what would happen if we did. Yes. A rabbit would probably be a owner operated business where they want you to be their whole marketing. Whereas a deer, they've taken some steps to investing in their marketing already. And that might be in the form of a marketing manager. Whereas an elephant might have a marketing manager, a marketing department, and they might already use a load of other agencies as well. And often when you're dealing with an elephant, you're going to be involved in their internal politics as well. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think so. And sometimes it turns a bit unhealthy because you get agency bashing and you get agency wars. And 
Talk about that. That's a real thing. I don't think it's ever been brought up on the show. What do you mean by agency bashing and agency wars? So if you're a social media agency, say, and you're working with a big client who might also be working with a graphics agency and an ads agency and a all these different agencies, they like, some of them like to hold all agency meetings, which are just interesting in their own right. But then I think there are a lot of blurred lines as to where one agency's remit ends and another's begins. And also you've got every single agency who probably offer the same services as each other. And they've got this side agenda to get all the work. You have to very much think about who's got the relationship with the client who's been there the longest sometimes longevity often wins out which services are up for grabs which ones are definitely not up for grabs where are you going to tread on someone's toes where do you have to watch out where are you safe to push a bit harder there's a lot of things to think about when you're not the only agency working with a client and you have to be agreed on that from your company so that everyone knows the do's and don'ts maybe i could make a statement about the difference between hares and elephants, and you tell me based on you have more experience than I do. But one thing I've noticed is when you're working for elephants, you'll be put into these RFPs where like you could have longevity, but then you still need to compete against the new person in order to get the next deal because they got like a new product line coming out. And so like, let's put all the agencies fresh start. What do you guys got for us? So now you spend a month with your creative team coming up with their proposal and figuring out how it's all going to work. Rather than when you're working with deer, you can tend to focus on the, the actual delivery of what you're doing time and time again. And I think there's more potential for like the deer services to become more universal, whereas the elephant stuff tends to be very bespoke for like what that unique organization needs. And then you have to like repeat the pitch every six months or every three months. Yeah. With elephant clients, there's a lot of time spent not actually doing the work it's about talking about the work you're going to do or reporting on the work that you've done in multiple different formats for multiple different stakeholders and yeah repitching for work that you already thought you won but actually something's changed and then repitching maybe if they change their marketing manager and that manager wants to bring in the agencies that they work with at their last company then you might have to repitch as well so yeah there are a lot of things to think about and some agencies will do this really well. They'll be set up for elephants and that's how they'll operate. But I think that I wouldn't discount deer and even rabbits sometimes as long as you've got the right processes to look after them. It's cool. It's a fun distinction. If you use the word stakeholder, you might be in an elephant meeting. You know? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> Let's revisit then your timeline. It's COVID happens. You lose a quarter of your revenue. Jody show back in business, team rallies, amazing Zoom calls, camaraderie, replace the revenue plus 20% growth. What month are we now in 2020? Is this towards the end of the year? August. Wow. So it all happened very fast. Yeah, it happened so fast. So in August, we got back up to regular revenue and then we grew another 20%. And that was where I took a long, hard look in the mirror and I thought, what do I want to do here? And I felt like I was at a crossroads of, I could go back to having a lifestyle business and I could go travel one month and every three again, as soon as travel's allowed. But I just feel like this team is more than just being my lifestyle business team. Some of them had, had maybe doubled our contracts with existing clients because they just had new ideas and because they'd all individually contributed to how much we grew. I just thought, 
I'm kind of doing them a disservice if I just go back to that. Interesting. And that's when I thought that selling might be the right thing to do. Really? So you felt guilty about being a digital nomad boss? I felt like given the last four or five months roller coaster, I pretty much felt like I had to choose between either going back and having a lifestyle business and turning this thing into a real performance business and being the head of that and doing that properly and kind of throwing the kitchen sink at everything. And I thought that it would be a really good time to end on a high for me remove a ceiling for my team and move on to the next thing because if I was being really honest with myself I didn't want to turn it into a performance business and I didn't want to be the head of it one of the reasons why I didn't want to go back to the lifestyle business is because I didn't want another COVID to mean that I had to do that again there were many reasons but that was where I thought seriously about selling and that was where I got intentional about selling was there anything else that indicated that you might be able to sell like some articles about valuations or anything like that it was you know, it's not always obvious that you can sell your business, especially if you're running an agency. What made it clear that you you could sell it? There's a friend who'd sold his agency who would talk to me about what they could do with us. And there was a company, they were in India actually, and they'd flown over to come meet us to come talk to us about potentially acquiring us as part of their portfolio. At the time, I think most of our clients were in healthcare and they were a healthcare marketing agency and they wanted to look into buying us. It didn't feel right at the time, so I just didn't go for it. But I knew I had the confidence that we could sell when we wanted to. And I'd also become friends with an agency owner with an agency about, I think it was eight or nine times bigger than mine. And she talked to me about the agencies that they had considered buying and had told me loads of information about what a buyer would be looking for. And because we had things like 80% of our revenue was recurring monthly because we had a fully distributed team now and because everything was a process and I wasn't the top and we had a really amazing second tier management team in place. I thought that we were a very saleable entity. Interesting. Before we get into that, did your team maybe want to go back to being digital nomads as well along with you? Was there any bit of that kind of like you setting the tone as this lifestyle entrepreneur that seeped down into the rest of the team? Yeah. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just me going off traveling, living an amazing life. I also wanted to put that into the way that the team worked. It was more small things. So working from home was already a thing that we were doing and there was a flexible way of doing that. We had flexible hours in place. We didn't create it to be part of our culture that people would just stay working all evening and people weren't expected to check their emails at weekends, do anything in the evenings. We, we were quite far away from the typical agency way of working. And that was on purpose because I thought, I want people to go home at five. I don't want it to be this norm that everyone just stays and just works in the evenings. I didn't think it was very healthy. I want to flag that up too, because there was an agency owner who posted in the DC a few weeks ago. I didn't reply to him yet. <laughs> it's on my to-do list. But essentially, there's this very strong prejudice amongst candidates in our database at Dynamite Jobs when, when they see the word agency, they have an idea of what that means in terms of like their work style and workload and, and lifestyle and everything. Yeah, I think that it can be really bad and it can be really unhealthy. And it's almost just been left to go in that direction until someone takes a, takes a stand and says, hang on, this isn't how I want to run my agency. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got 
going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done-for-you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero-risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit. Or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. So let's go back to the moment you're like, okay, I got a saleable entity. This is an opportunity for me and for the team. I've seen so many agencies over the years go for like two times earnings. So at that moment, like before you were selling, what did you think your multiple was going to be? Or how did you think about the business valuation and whether or not that was worth it to you? I had an idea of roughly what it could be because we'd had offers before. And I just set about speaking to people, really. So the agency owner who I'd spoken to before, she put me on to someone else. He was kind of a guy who prepared companies for sale. But when I spoke to him, he was very much about creating a manual, creating processes, creating a good second tier management. And I was like, hang on, I've done all this stuff already. And then he's like, oh, okay, you don't need me then. This would have taken about six months, but you don't need me. I'll put you straight onto this broker. So he put me onto a broker who deals solely with agencies because I looked at his site and seen the kind of work he did. And because of his blog post, I knew that he sold about eight agencies a year. It was like, this is just routine for him. This is what happens. He just buys and sells agencies. So that cemented in my mind, I can just be one of those agencies that he's just bought and sold and it can happen. And so it felt like it was definitely going to happen as soon as I signed up with this guy. And part of the talking to him was in saying we needed to create a deck for the business and we needed to put down lots of information that a buyer might want to see. But I'd also already created that document because I did it about (laughs) two years before I might have watched a YouTube video or something about seeing your business as a product and seeing it through the eyes of a buyer so I already had a deck ready to go which he just looked over and said oh wow this is this is great no one normally comes to us with these types of things so because I'd kind of put a lot of the groundwork in beforehand and because I'd spoken to the agency owner who bought agencies I knew what a buyer would be looking for. So signed up with the broker and he just started introducing us to bigger agencies who could buy us. And was that primarily the level of interest was from other agencies wanting to bring your customers into theirs? Yes, exactly. I'd done a lot of research on, I think I just typed in agency acquisition and had a look at all those search results and saw what kind of entities bought agencies. And it was pretty much bigger agencies. 
would that pose any threat to your staff? Wouldn't that be like the first thought? It's like, let's take the customers and get rid of the overhead. Yeah, I thought about that a lot. And I wanted to go with a company who were really keen on growing and who were talking about the potential for the team. So when I had the meetings, so we had 12 initial meetings with different agencies. Wow. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, we... So you guys were like the the band in LA that like all the <laughs> A&R agents are standing in the audience. Like people wanted to buy this agency. People wanted to buy us. Can you sum up why? Because we talk on the show all the time, you know, it's going to be a two-year earnout and two times EBITDA. I know you said process and all that, but was that really everything? Was it your niche or was there another... Was it 2020? Is there something different, in other words, about agencies right now than maybe five years ago? I'm speaking from like my old mindset. What do I need to open my mind to? I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I think that the fact that we'd not just survived, but thrived through 2020 played a big part. I think that when you Googled us, it looked really good. We had something like over 200 Google reviews. Many of the agencies that I had meetings with had like fewer than 10. Our team were great. You can tell they're great from the website. 80% of our revenue was recurring, collected in advance. But I knew we had an attractive proposition. And also, I wasn't desperate to sell because I just thought the worst case scenario is that I can just go back to what I was doing before, which was the lifestyle business thing. So when I was speaking to those 12 different buyers, I didn't feel like they were interviewing me. I felt like I was interviewing them. And so it was a bit like, well, what are your intentions for my team? (laughs) What are your intentions for my clients? It felt like a nice way around of doing it. And it made it sustainable to do 12 because otherwise it would have been a bit hard. How long did it take you to sell the business? The broker said it would take six months and it took six months and two days. What does that six months look like more or less? Can you break it down for us in your case? In this case, because I'd already created the deck, the broker went out to his database and I think they do some cold calling and just putting feelers out there with a one pager on the business and what it looks like. And that's anonymized. You spend the first probably about six weeks, maybe two months having initial meetings. You spend the next month having second meetings. So we had six second meetings and then we spent the next month getting offers. I think we had a few third meetings as well. And what would the average offer look like in terms of its components? Was it just like, here's blank amount of money or was it, here's this plus this weird thing, plus we want you to do this? Like what did the average offer look like? We got three in the end. They were all different. One of the offers that we got that we didn't go with They did strange things to our numbers, like they averaged out the profit over the last three years and they put the offer based on that. But I don't know why you would do that for a growing company. They kind of put in like a really big CEO salary that didn't exist or didn't need to be there. And then just funny things like that to kind of manipulate the numbers. They were basically like, you know, to replicate Jody's input, you need to pay somebody 160000 a year. And so that's actually a real cost of the business. So the profit's lower. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And then maybe like, oh, well, you're distributed, but actually we want you to have an office and an office is going to cost this much. So we're going to whack this on and take it off your profit. And therefore that's not going to be included in the multiplier and stuff like that. So some of the things that we saw on term sheets were a bit, it put a question mark over my head because I wanted to work with someone in a real, like in a real partnership. I wanted it to be a real good feeling where I I knew that they were going to look after my team and my clients and my company. And I think that 
I maybe read into the early stages quite a bit because I thought it would be reflective of how they actually were to work with. I think that's a really good insight. I mean, I only have N equals one experience, but we went into an LOI period with someone who was like a step too clever on their offer. And then during the LOI at the last minute, they were like very clever and, and basically underhanded and sneaky. And that kind of like cleverness of like, let's see if they buy this added CEO salary and office and stuff. It's like, without talking with you about it, it's just, it's red flag central. Yeah. You know? Even a big agency, just to you know, put it into perspective for people, they could have somebody whose half of their desk is just doing this full time, mm. right? Like biz dev. And like, it's like, I'm just going to make offers. Like I'm going to make 10 offers this year and one's going to go See through sticks, yeah. and I'm going to waste people like Jody's time all year long. And so I think it's really smart to like, I don't know, get ahead of stuff like that and sniff it out. And so the offer that we got from the business that we did go with, so it involved a period of negotiation and that period of negotiation started by it going through the broker. But then in the end, I was like, I'll just speak to them because I just wanted to have an open and honest conversation about what I wanted, know more about what they wanted and get to a mutually beneficial agreement just together without the whole like, oh, my client says this. And well, my, my <laughs> client says, I just didn't want any of that rubbish because I just yeah. thought there's no point. So I tried to keep it as simple as possible. And then it, yeah, it worked out pretty well. What were the things on either side that were sticky? Were they technical things? What were the snags? Hmm, I think a lot of it's in negotiating the actual offer itself. And then after that comes the earnout because the typical agency earnout is between three and five years. And I didn't have one. I think that I was very clear on what I wanted from the sale and why I thought an earnout was totally set to surplus to requirements and I would think I was able to explain that to the buyer in the way that it made sense for them and I think I was lucky to have a buyer that was receptive to that at the same time because I don't think all of them would be but I think for a lot of agencies that do sell the earnout will be the stickiest thing because it it compromises how you spend your time and you probably want the finish line to be the actual finish line, not the start of like a three-year period where you have to work for someone else in your own company. The broker told us that we could expect offers in the realms of between four to six times EBITDA. What we actually got was offers in the realms of five to seven times EBITDA. But also what came into it was seller's discretionary earnings. So because I wasn't kind of working in the business it meant that owners drawings weren't taken out of profit which then meant that the EBITDA included them so it meant that we got more for the business because we had such a strong second tier management in place. So in other words you got credit for the fact that you weren't the CEO of your own company? Yeah, I guess so. And because it wasn't a cost that they would need going forward because I wasn't going to be doing an earn out, it made a lot of sense that it wouldn't be included in the profit. Incredible. So do you remember when you logged in your bank account and saw the money? <laughs> so that's interesting because I remember when the transaction completed and my accountant said to me, oh, wow, is that going to be the biggest transaction you ever do in your whole life? And I was like, oh my God, I hope not. <laughs> I'm 32. <laughs> Have I just peaked? And there was, a, 
there was a real moment of like, am I done? And, and then I was like, no, no, I'm not. Absolutely. I'm not like, this is just the start. <laughs> so I think it's a powerful moment, actually everything being complete because in the time leading up to that actual completion, you have to practice so much patience because you've got lawyers to deal with, you've got due diligence to deal with. And I'm not very good at being patient as many entrepreneurs aren't. And those three months I found really difficult to just trust that everything was going through. I wrote a book because I was like, I need to do something other than just trying, try and follow this sale up. When did the money hit? March, 2021. March, 2021. Yep. And we're sitting here December, 2021. Is anything weird happened after you sold that you didn't expect? I thought when I sold, I would want to be a writer and because I've, I've written quite a few books and articles and things and I thought I just want to do that all the time. But then what I realized was that the only reason I love doing that so much is because it's like the tip of this iceberg and I'm using running a business as my material for the books and articles. And without the material, I don't have any interest in it at all. It's like an outlet. It's not something that I want to do as a like a career in itself. One thing I just want to circle back on briefly is your agency was named after you. Yeah. Can you give us a name and what insights do you have about, you know, naming conventions based on that? <laughs> my agency, so my name is Jodie Cook and my agency was called JC Social Media because I was at a networking event in the first month of having a business and I didn't have a name and everyone was going around the room and saying their business name and I was like, I don't have one. <laughs> But in the room, there was ML Accountancy, there was JP Entertainment, and there was JS Technical <laughs> Services. And I thought, huh, That'll JC do. Social Media. So it was all conjured up in about two minutes. And then I stood up and said that that was my company name. So I'm not the person to talk to about naming Did it work out okay, though? Just... It worked out fine. It probably shouldn't have worked out fine because it didn't really help with the whole Jody show thing. But I think if you've created something that is attractive enough, nothing is insurmountable, not even having your initials in the title. What are you going to do now? So after I decided that I wanted to be in the arena, I spent the rest of the summer thinking of ideas and coming up with ideas and my husband and I would just go to different coffee shops and different places and just chat about business ideas and write different business plans so idea 22 is the one that we're rolling with which I'll tell you about in the future can you tell me some of the ones you didn't go with when we were thinking of ideas they had a certain set of parameters that they had to fulfill and one of those was that they had to be location independent so it couldn't be like a gym in a local area because that just wouldn't work it had to be something that was good for the planet good for the world that we both enjoyed doing because we decided we're going to start our business together and has to be something which has got the potential to scale to being a hundred million business has to be something that fits in with both of our zones of genius and I quite like that concept it's like a triple circle Venn diagram what does it mean to you Well, I guess it's the mix of what you like doing, what you're good at doing and what the world needs. And so it was like completing that as an exercise and then working out what is in the middle of that for me, because it's different for everyone. All the business ideas were based on those parameters, which I think gave it some direction because otherwise we would have been thinking about all sorts of businesses. Final question, the hardest one. There's a lot of people listening right now that they're resonating with your story and they're thinking, I'd like to duplicate 
some of Jody's success for myself. What sort of a general advice do you have for people that are thinking that right now? I really like working out what I want to achieve and then working out what I need to do every day and for how long. And then I think that that kind of becomes a superpower and it makes it look like everything comes easy to you. But really what you've done is you've broken something huge down into tasks that you just do every day. So like writing a book, if you write for 90 minutes every day in three months, you'll have a 70,000 word manuscript. And that's amazing because hardly anyone writes a book. But the hard bit is just making sure you do it every single day. And that's often the part that is overlooked. But I think it can be a massive superpower. Very cool. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Jody. Thanks for having me. And a big shout out to Jody Cook for joining the show and for sharing her story of growing a successful agency in person with our members at DC Mexico. I don't know if you noticed, but we were in person for this interview. First time I got a chance to do that in a while, which is really cool to hang out with Jody. And also just that that's a small representation of all the entrepreneurs that are in town right now. We're having a holiday party in just a few weeks. Everybody's getting in the holiday mood and the weather here is great and so many cool people are in town. So pretty cool. Hopefully some of those stories will make it onto this pod. To find out, join us next Thursday morning as per the usual. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.